Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. Together, we research and break down complex issues facing our society and bring our findings to you every week. Our promise to you is to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported, and to try to make it clear when we're giving you our opinion versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human, and our blind spots and our biases will show through sometimes. But our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give everybody a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful and beneficial way. Due to the nature of our podcast, some of the things we talk about can get pretty heavy and maybe divisive. But we believe that common understanding can be found and hope those of you listening agree. We don't accept that the current state of society is the way it must be. Together, we can build a better world for ourselves and future generations. So, we suggest getting comfortable, and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside! conspiracy theory, who's likely to believe them, and why. This week, things are going to get a bit heavier as we talk about the ways in which these conspiracy theories affect the people who believe them, and the people around those people, and then how this kind of thinking uh, paves the path to radicalized thinking for many. We'll talk about some historical examples too, and and uh, then... As always, we'll find some good news to leave you with. So shall we dive right in? I think we shall. So we talked in our last episode about the factors that predispose people to participation in these conspiracy beliefs. And we talked about how there's a tendency to dismiss this kind of thinking as pathological or even simply paranoid. Uh, But the reality of the matter is that conspiracy beliefs can directly impact both individuals and because we live in social groups, society. Even when conspiracy theories are highly unlikely to be true, belief in them can have an impact on important facets of life, like health and interpersonal relationships and safety. And this impact comes from what leading researcher Jan Willem van Proyen calls the subjective reality of belief. What people believe drives their behavior. And while beliefs sometimes may be flawed or even naive, they might produce behavior that has real and actual consequences. Now, we do have to say, not all the consequences of conspiracy thinking are are necessarily negative. For example, belief in conspiracy theories is also generally associated with increased support for democratic principles, which, you know, doesn't feel like it lines up with recent events, but it actually is research-based and and objectively correlated, right? And we also know that conspiracy theories can inspire and justify protest movements, which could be positive or negative depending on the type of social change that they're pursuing and the person who's examining the social change that they're pursuing. (laughs) And then response to popular conspiracy theories can even encourage increased government transparency. But... The impacts that are most often felt individually and collectively tend to be the less than desirable ones. 
we talked about last week, actually, and just didn't put it in here, how uh, conspiratorial thinking can also be correlated with uh, uh, creativity. Mm-hmm. Right? It was it was just a, a one sentence thing, but you some of the side effects of being conspiratorially minded might also include a, a better capacity to be creative or be artistic. So it, yeah, you're just driving home that point that not every impact of thinking about conspiracies or even believing in them is is negative. We're just yeah. going to focus on the negative because I don't think the number of people who have changed the world for the better with their creative <laughs> thinking is equal to the number of people who maybe changed it for the worse. <laughs> so That's, That is um, probably a fair assessment. I, I don't know. I have to look into it. I mean, people have changed the world with art, but I, uh, I just don't know if it's on the same scale. So of the negative impacts, uh, one area in which we can really see effects... Um, is health and safety. And often these impacts are just, they're just detrimental. The most obvious example of this is anti-vaccine conspiracies. And now we are not lumping everyone who has questions or concerns about vaccine safety or schedules into an anti-vaxxer label. Um, Robin and I have talked about this before. She hates that label because she thinks it's it. condescending and broad and just too big. Too big. What we're, yeah. <laughs> what we're talking about here are the beliefs that fit the definition of conspiracy theory we talked about last time that involve perceptions of intentional and collaborative efforts on the part of one group to deceive and or cause harm to another group. So the right. people who they think doctors are all in it together with big pharma to make money or that, you know, they're, I think there was an old one about vaccines actually causing HIV and, uh, yeah. and AIDS, stuff like that. That's actually, I, as I was doing research for this, there's actually, it's primarily centered in Africa where uh, we have higher concentrations of, people groups who are dealing with HIV, um, but actually that is a conspiracy theory that's pretty common over there. Um, and it is one hurdle to actually getting people to use contraceptives and uh, medical therapy for that virus. Um, but when, going back to the vaccine thing, right? One of the primary conspiracy theories surrounding vaccines is that your basic childhood vaccines cause autism but that the pharmaceutical industry covers up the evidence of that harm in order to continue making money and that the United States government kind of conspires with them in order to allow them to continue making money and misleading the public and causing harm to children across the United States and, and around the world. Um, and so this belief can lead people to deny their children some important childhood vaccines and could potentially open those kids up to significant health consequences both early in life and later in life. Um, there's another example of a conspiracy theory surrounding health among, and this is slightly older, um, this is an older conspiracy theory among the African-American population that contraceptives were actually introduced as a means of black genocide or preventing uh, the increase in the black population and belief in this conspiracy theory has shaped negative attitudes towards contraceptives 
and predicts a decreased use of those contraceptives, especially among men, in the African-American community. And the potential impacts to health here are, I mean, they're obvious. And, and far more than health. We're just, this section is focusing on health, but obviously massive ripple effect there. And of course, uh, there's just a general trend that holding more conspiracy beliefs predicts a preference for alternative medicine versus standard medical approaches. And while this in general is neither positive nor negative, one's choice of medical treatments has significant health consequences. Um, you, all you have to do is look no further than Steve Jobs. Right? Yeah. He tried to treat his, his cancer with quote-unquote alternative medicines with, with a specific diet and um, it ultimately cost him his life. Yeah. It's far from the only story. Right. I think we all know, I think everybody probably has that one person in their life who just doesn't trust the doctor, right? And they're going to go to their, their alternative health guru, their chiropractor, their herbalist, whoever that is. Um, and it would be interesting, you know, just take the temperature, pull that person on where they are on some general societal issues. And I, it would surprise me if they are not participatory in at least one of these, even if it's a benign conspiracy beliefs oh yeah and that's not to say either and i think we should we want to be careful about this this isn't to say that there's not a benefit to uh you know a chiropractor or oh yeah um you know using herbal medications or treatments at, at certain points it's just that there are people who tend to overweight the value Correct. of those services because of their conspiratorial beliefs about traditional Western medicine. Right. Um, and that's where the harm comes in. Yeah. And, and again, and we'll talk about this too a little bit later, but a lot of this is correlational, right? People who think this are more likely to think this. We're not necessarily saying that they're always connected or that one causes the other. It's just we see these co-occurring in very many cases. Um, mm. Belief in conspiracy theories also has implications for people's interpersonal relationships. We talked last episode about the fact that people who tend to believe in conspiracy theories also tend to feel disenfranchised and alienated individually and as a group. Uh, but this also, you know, this also extends to other experiences. Belief in conspiracy theories is correlated with various factors and conditions that are related to, uh, quote unquote, impaired interpersonal functioning, like interpersonal paranoia. We talked about that last episode. Narcissism disagreeableness, insecure attachment, and Machiavellianism. And research also tells us that belief in conspiracy theories correlates with increased expectations of negative evaluations and of fear of being socially excluded. None of that is a recipe for great interpersonal relationships. <laughs> right. Uh, we actually have seen several examples of this <clears throat> In, in the last few years with the QAnon conspiracy theory, mm -hmm. uh, people who stop talking to their friends, stop talking to their family, break up with their significant other, uh, withdraw from society because they get so sucked in to that, you know, specific conspiracy theory. Yeah. Um, the, the level of interpersonal paranoia. I was reading an article. Oh, gosh, it was a few months ago now. I think it was in The Atlantic. Um, but it was specifically focused on people who believe they're being watched 
And it was a, a few tales of these people who genuinely believe that because of their um, awareness of these vast conspiracies, that they are being constantly followed and harassed by secret government agents and secret actors on behalf of the organizations that are involved in these conspiracies. And, and their every day is, they'll, they'll pick out somebody on the bus and identify them as a watcher. Or if somebody turns the same corner as them walking down the street, they're a watcher. And they, there's this idea of this vast web of people whose sole purpose it is to watch these other people who are now aware of these, these conspiracies. And it's, hmm. it is just, it's a terrifying rabbit hole to get into. I cannot personally imagine perceiving every moment of my life that I'm being watched by someone else. Like that's terrifying. Yeah. And but that it, goes, it back goes to that hand over. in hand with that. Yeah, it's an over overdeveloped sense or an overdeveloped uh, ability to to recognize patterns. Right, is what we were talking about last week. There's when you get to that point, that level of paranoia. There's no such thing as a coincidence anymore. Right, everything is a pattern. Everything has a meaning, and they're just they're just interpreting the static of their life as the face. And yeah, it's not. It's just coincidence. Believe me. As somebody who has worked in the government, <laughs> we are just not coordinated enough to pull something no, like hurting that cats. off. It's just hurting cats. Not, not gonna happen. Right, but you can imagine um, what that does to somebody's ability to have a relationship with anyone else. Anybody, anybody. Yeah, imagine trying to have a romantic relationship with somebody, and like and you think that you're being watched so anytime they try to get to know you better your you, your brain's automatically going to hang up on that like oh yeah. they're trying they they're one of them they're trying to figure me out this is a plant or or not a non-romantic relationship a familial relationship you would start turning on your family because maybe they'll tell you you got to get out well now you're one of them right you are you're you're trying to you know, bring me, pull me away from the truth, uh, and I'm not going to fall for it. Um, just, well, way back in, way back, <laughs> uh, 2018, I think, um, you might remember Robert Bowers. Uh, he, walked into a synagogue in Pittsburgh oh, with yeah. three handguns and an, and an assault rifle. And yep. he literally said that he wanted to kill Jews and then he just opened fire. And you know, he was, he was a, a white nationalist, but specifically when it became, when it comes to his relations relationship, um, he had been, isolated by his belief in, in conspiracies. You know, his, it, reading through the article, his neighbors never interacted with him. He didn't have many friends. He didn't appear to have finished high school. His classmates didn't remember him. And that left him basically alone and looking for an in-group to be part of. Mm -hmm. And... His his identity then basically became white, right? And then he sort of fell into that 
well, not sort of, he fully fell into that, that white nationalist identity and pursued that. And um, in part because of his increasing alienation, his increasing isolation, and then being pulled in by a group that accepted him. Right. Or, or so he thought. And once and that becomes can, your identity, you lose your ability to then relate to people's outside of your group. Not only do you lose your ability, you lose your desire to relate to people outside of that group. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll get into the pillars of, of, of what makes a radical, of how people radicalize in a little bit. Um, <laughs> very little bit, actually. But <laughs> one of the important factors about it is both a coincidence, a coincidence of becoming um, isolated and then accepted by a group. Like that is this finding your group is, is one of the pillars. Uh, but before we get there, uh, we want to talk about another you know personal impact, which would be your uh, a person's own success, their personal success. Um, we have evidence that belief in conspiracy theories can impact one's personal success, real and perceived, right? On a basic level, conspiratorial thinking can encourage individuals to behave in a way that increases their sense of powerlessness, like decreasing their participation in processes that affect them, which seems weird. Right. Um, so a 2014 study found that people who are presented with conspiracy theories about climate change, for example, scientists are just chasing grant money, are less likely to plan to vote. Hmm. So they... They hear this conspiracy theory, and then they knowingly, maybe not consciously, but knowingly, remove themselves from from any sort of voting power by saying, oh, I'm just not going to vote now, which is weird. I don't, I don't know why those are correlated, but that's why this is, that's what this is talking about, that, that conspiratorial thinking uh, will get people to behave in ways that increase their powerlessness or decrease their power would be the better way to put that. A 2017 study reported that believing in work-related conspiracies, so the idea that managers make decisions to protect their own interests, causes individuals to feel less committed to their job, which I totally, uh, 100% understand that. I have actually left jobs because I had managers that I just did not feel like were there for me, even though I liked the job. Right. It definitely felt like my, my leadership was not there for me, not there to make sure that I was being taken care of necessarily by the company, but, but prioritizing literally everything else above me. And I was just a grunt that was there to carry out the menial tasks of day-to-day -day sales. Um, yeah. And I, I so, feel like we, we <clears throat> focus so much on conspiracy theories being big. Right. Overarching mm. national level, big picture, big pharma, you know, election fraud, all that kind of stuff. When really there's so much about this conspiracy thinking that filters down into everyday life. Like how many okay. people have been at a job where other people in the office are talking about, oh, you know, the managers over there, they don't care about us. They make all their decisions to cut budgets and make themselves look better. That is conspiratorial thinking. That is the perception that another group, an out group, is working together 
and consolidating their power to better themselves and harm others. Like all of that factors into conspiracy theories. And if you can start by believing a conspiracy theory at work about your manager, then you might be a little bit more willing to believe that scientists are just chasing grant money or that they're people are just trying to cripple big oil or whatever with their climate change theories. And then you're maybe more likely to believe that an entire political party has conspired together across states to steal an election. It doesn't have to start at those giant QAnon levels. Oh, and it almost never does. It, 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 very rarely do people go from zero to 100 directly. You know, it's step it's incremental it's incremental it's incremental little steps at a time little steps at a time you know i hate to fall victim to godwin's law but hitler didn't start out by saying kill the jews right you know he pushed the envelope and pushed the envelope and allowed things to normalize and it got to that point can i tell you a story yeah this is i i i found myself uh, neck deep in a conspiracy these last couple of days, but it's really fun. Oh my! Um, it's not really fun, but it is. So I'm sure you've heard. I'm sure you've heard about uh, GameStop, right? Yes. Yeah. The, the stock that's going on right now. Mm-hmm. We have some. Good so full disclosure. About that at work. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Full disclosure. Definitely bought some stock for the, for the lulls. Oh. Yeah. Um, I'm always too late. This is one of the the problems with being old. Is I'm. It's not. It's on not the too late. We're gonna. Trend. T- we're going to take the rocket to the moon. I'm not a financial advisor. Don't listen to me, anybody. <laughs> but no, I've been watching this conspiratorial thinking happen in real time while we're studying this. And I actually fell victim to part of it. And then I caught myself because I was like, oh, wait. <laughs> wait, what? I, I know this. I know this one. So yesterday, um, the well, Wednesday, really the stocks really started going up in price. And then yesterday morning, the brokers um, like Robinhood mm-hmm. and Webull, those those fast, easy stock buying apps where, where the layman, the Joe Everyman can get in and start buying stuff, they actually restricted people's ability to buy stocks. Mm-hmm. This was a huge deal because what they did allow was people to sell their stocks. Mm-hmm. And... The whole problem right now that that people are basically waging warfare on, sort of mimetic warfare, <laughs> um, is 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 that the hedge funds are consistently capitalizing on running businesses out out of business into the ground. Right? Mm-hmm. They do this by short shorting stock very. Not to get too deep into the weeds, but that means that they they basically borrow stock from these companies and sell that stock, betting that the price of the stock is going to drop. And then they later on buy that stock that they sold back at a lower price, and then they pocket the difference. So they sell it for $10 and they buy it back for $5, and they make $5 per stock. It's really shady anyway. It's kind of weird because- Super shady. Selling lots of stock drives the price of stock down anyway. Mm-hmm. So you can basically make it a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And Reddit and a bunch of national quote unquote or international quote unquote retail investors 
didn't like that. So they started buying all the stock, buying all the stock. So then Robinhood comes in on Mon on Thursday and they say, nope, you can't buy any more stock. And then Webull says that and other E-Trade, I think, shut down at one point. Basically, all of these these apps that facilitate that stock buying, they all kind of say, no, you can't buy anymore. You can sell it all you want, but you can't buy anymore. The problem is selling it totally defeats the purpose and only serves to help the hedge funds, which just pisses people off more. Right. So come to find out, Robinhood, who became the center of attention for this, even though they weren't the only one who did this, Robinhood, they, they're... 40% of their revenue stream comes from a company called Citadel. Mm -hmm. And Citadel is a hedge group, hedge fund manager. Citadel had previously bailed out another hedge fund called uh, Melvin. Melvin something. I just know it as Melvin because it's a slur now on Reddit. <laughs> 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 uh, and... They had they had given basically two billion dollars to Melvin to bail that small hedge fund. There's only thirty three employees, or there were, mm -hmm. to bail them out because they couldn't cover their shorts. All of the shorts were way more expensive. All the stocks were way more expensive than they were when Melvin sold them. So they they are on the hook for that difference. Mm -hmm. They don't make any money now. They're paying out the the wazoo for that, and it cost them. A bunch of money. Uh, I think I'm seeing some conflicting numbers. On the low end, I'm seeing $8 billion cost to hedge funds right now. And on the high end, I'm seeing $70 billion. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I feel like what... I saw one number that was like $13 billion to a single fund that bankrupted it. Um, yeah. A lot of numbers. There's a lot Just of numbers. Google, suffice it to Googling say, billion, billions of dollars have been cost. Now. Yes. So it's not a good look that Citadel bailed out one hedge fund is the primary revenue stream for Robinhood, or at least 40% of their revenue stream, mm -hmm. which I'd assume is the largest. And then Robinhood stops allowing people to buy this stock, which would hurt these hedge funds. Buying yeah. it would hurt the hedge funds more. Just not a good look. So people got it in their head that Citadel told Robinhood not to let people buy that stock anymore, mm -hmm. which... I was like, yep, that is totally what happened. I see it connected. By, I'm, I'm going I'm to buy this stock. I'm buying this stock now because I'm going to get me some tendies. And I hate hedge funds. I hate hedge funds too. And, and, I do actually. And, you know, I was swept up in it. It was actually kind of fun, which is what makes it so dangerous because right. you feel like you get this like sense of validation. Like, oh, I'm part of this group of people and this is so rewarding and like right? yeah we're taking it to the we're sticking it to the man take and, that hedge um, fund managers with your double polos right with your three yachts and but that's i mean so like i caught myself in that thinking i was like wow you're way too emotionally involved in this right. and you have you've you've fallen for one of the classic blunders and you know backed off of that and come to find out i mean yeah there's probably a fairly reasonable explanation about Robin Hood's uh, obligations to protect right. the the buyers as well as to protect themselves from overselling and overextending themselves to a point where they can't fulfill that those orders. Because um, they Robin Hood specifically clears their own stock and that, that puts them on the hook for a lot of money. Yes. Regardless, very long story uh, about how easy it is 
to get caught up in these these conspiracy theories and how they're not always huge. Like that's not necessarily a huge conspiracy theory. Right. Grand scheme of things. And I was just sucking it up. And I was yeah. like, oh. <laughs> I still have three shares though because I'm... <sighs> I'm doing it for the lulls. We'll see what happens. It's like okay, nothing in the grand scheme of things. Okay, next time that Reddit's talking about that kind of stuff, you gotta let me know. But it, I mean, like, that's the perfect example, though, of how this stuff happens. Because like we talked about last week, conspiracy theories are not always wrong. Sometimes they're true. There's a class action lawsuit happening right now against Robin Hood based on exactly those things that you said that they were being protective of the big hedge fund companies and that that came at a cost to the individual users of Robinhood. Whether that suit's going to go anywhere, we don't know. Whether it's going to come out in the wash that this was actually an imposition from a large hedge fund manager onto an app that is primarily marketed at the individual, that might come out, right? But it's that that us versus them in-group, out-group thinking and the satisfaction that you get from even from being part of the that you're sticking it to the man yeah that sets people down this path like are you gonna go get an ar-15 and shoot up a hedge fund office because of this probably not no definitely not i just want to stipulate really really quick we are not saying that the existence of a court case means that there is merit to to no to that to the argument and I don't want people to misconstrue us just because there's a class action lawsuit doesn't mean that the conspiracy theory is right. It only means that there is enough on the surface to justify filing the case. Right. And it it means that that there's some hope that we may actually see evidence to the contrary or to confirm all of this discussion. There's there's an opportunity for actual evidence to be presented at this point. So how how does like what happens to cause somebody to go from I'm going to throw some money at this joke stock to to stick it to the hedge fund managers to I'm going to load up my AR and march into their offices and shoot up all the employees. Like where did what what leads people to do that? Okay, so I think before we can get to that, we have to talk about some of these examples. We like let's go back and talk about a few things that we can use as examples going forward. Right. right? So these things really, really happened. These things really, really did happen. In 2016, uh, one of the very first elements of the QAnon conspiracy theories, conspiracy universe. Uh, Conglomerate. <laughs> yeah, came out. Uh, you might remember it called Pizzagate. Basically, it was that the first iteration of this theory that posited that high-ranking Democratic Party officials were involved in a pedophilia ring that involved the basements of several Washington, D.C. restaurants. Um, and because of that theory, one adherent to this, this thought went into one of these pizza restaurants and shot off his AR-15 rifle, uh, believing that he was on a mission to rescue children who were trapped in the basement of that building. And he was gobsmacked when they didn't find any children in the basement of that building. Or a basement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's no, there was no there basement. There was no basement either. there. Robert Bowers, like we were talking about earlier, a gunman who killed 11 people, oh. injured six other people in a Pittsburgh synagogue in October of 2018, justified his attack on that synagogue by claiming that Jewish people were stealthily supporting illegal immigrants. That's another conspiracy theory. 
2018 also gave us arson in California that led to devastating wildfires and a standoff at Hoover Dam by QAnon adherents. I just want to touch on that. It wasn't Why just a standoff. They shut it down. They shut down they, Hoover Dam. They took over Hoover Dam, which is a federal facility, with guns and shut it down. Hoover Dam. Uh, last spring, spring 2020, a train engineer who shared conspiracy theories about the intent of the USNS Mercy in the port of Los Angeles derailed a train. Uh, authorities disrupted a plot against a Missouri hospital in which the subject intended to attack, quote unquote, high value targets if the government issued martial law and quarantine orders as a result of COVID-19. Um, all of these people committed or plotted to commit these radical acts of violence with conspiracy theories as at least part of their motivation. We know that, quote unquote, underground extremist movements like groups of neo-Nazis or violent anti-globalists or religious fundamentalists, etc., etc., are characterized by excessive conspiracy beliefs. Not, oh, this one person or my managers or the hedge fund guys up here are trying to bring me down. But more than that, excessive. Right. It's spiraling out of control. And that has led some of us, including Robin and myself, <laughs> to yes. ask... Does believing in conspiracy theories lead people down a path to radicalization? And as we see more people with open trust in conspiracy theories also communicating extremist rhetoric and engaging in radical behavior, it might be tempting to fall prey to the old correlation equals causation fallacy. I cannot stop thinking about Marjorie Taylor Greene and this you know, QAnon believer who also said that we should kill Democrats or supported ideas of, of putting bullets in the head of Democrats. I found out today, by the way, this one blows my mind. Everything, my mind's been blown a lot by this particular research topic. I found out today that she believed or supported the theory at one point that the Jews, it's always the Jews, uh -huh. if you are Jewish and listening to this, I'm so sorry. The Jews, all of them together, have a space-based laser weapon. Yes! That refocuses the energy of the sun. Yes! And shoots it down to Earth. And that is what caused the California wildfires. I saw a cryptic tweet about that today. And I was like, what the crap? Because the person who tweeted it, his name is Peter Segal. And he was like... On behalf of all the other Jews in the world, no, you can't have our laser. And I was like, what the crap is he talking about? It's so crazy. Like, what? Oh, God. Oh, my God. And and I, I kind of went through the logic chain of how she got to that point. And, like, you can see how somebody who maybe isn't very well equipped with critical thinking skills... <laughs> would come to that conclusion because she strung together a bunch of different things like an I, uh, an idea to harvest uh, sunlight, solar mm -hmm. energy, and beam that to land-based storage facilities, generators, that sort of thing. Right. And some satellite launches and some companies right. and some people on this board here. Like it is very much that that it's always sunny in Philadelphia scene where the guy's up against the like <laughs> up against the cork board with yarn strings yes. everywhere. But I could I could see it. But I digress. 
Right. In most cases, most cases, making the assumption that uh, believing in conspiracy theories will lead you definitely down a path to radicalization is unwise. Right. Uh, We probably should pause here really quick to discuss what correlation and causation are and why they do not equal each other. Um, in case right. anybody is, who is listening is not familiar with those terms or with that particular fallacy uh, that we mentioned. Yeah. so It gets a, thrown around a lot. Yeah. Oh, correlation doesn't equal causation. I've seen it used incorrectly just as often right. as I've seen it correctly, <laughs> right. Which, if not more often. Right. And hopefully yeah. if you're listening to this and you didn't know before, now you can use it to correct people who uh, are doing it wrong. So you're yeah. welcome. No, correlation is a term that is used in analysis, most often statistical analysis, to describe the relationship between two factors that coexist in a set of data. But it's used to describe that relationship without making implications about cause and effect. So you might hear a report say that two things are strongly correlated, meaning that they seem to increase and decrease in close relationship to each other, Um, But it doesn't mean that one definitively causes the other. So if you want to look for correlation in news reports or in studies, you can look for phrases that tell you how much more likely one is to experience one factor if they experience the other. So let's say, and I'm just making this up off the top of my head, people who ribbon dance are more likely to experience foot amputation. This phrasing implies that there seems to be some relationship between the two, between people who ribbon dance and people who experience foot amputation, but that there's no evidence presented that one causes the other, right? There's no evidence that ribbon dancing is going to cause you to have your foot amputated or that having your foot amputated is going to cause you to take up ribbon dancing. Sometimes you can actually find some really great nonsense correlations out there to help you remember this. If you just look up nonsense correlations, you'll find some great ones. But one of my favorite ones is um, that ice cream consumption on a data chart could be linked to increased murder rates, right? So during May, June, and July, both ice cream consumption and murder rates increased pretty steadily and pretty close to the same rate. But there are some other factors here that could stand in that gap as the causative factor for both. One current theory out there is heat, right? It gets hot and people get agitated when it gets hot and they eat ice cream when it gets hot. Another one is that more people are literally physically outside. You're more likely to be murdered when you're outside. Yeah. Um, So there are some other factors that can stand there and and be the cause for both. But if you're just looking at that chart, it looks like there's a really strong relationship between murder rates and ice cream. Now, causation, the other half of this, is a term used to describe relationships between two factors when it can be determined whether one has a cause and effect impact on the other. So, for example, scientists can demonstrate that exposure to radiation causes cancer. Often, efforts to prove causation begin with studies that demonstrate correlation, but statements like ribbon dancing causes foot amputation should only be used when there is credible evidence as to why or how and an indicator of how often the result occurs. So if you see ribbon dancers are more likely to experience foot amputation, they're just correlated. One goes up, but there could be another factor in there, or one goes up when the other goes up, but there could be another factor in there that explains both of those things. Right. 
when you see ribbon dancing causes foot amputations, then you know it's just some sort of tragic thing that happens with that ribbon and those people's feet. Right. You go to do the le- the leap where you put this, the where big circle and you just yeah, land just wrong like, on your ankle and boom, boom your foot pops, pops off. Like, yeah. you know. Just terrible. Like terrible. A, like a Barbie doll. We're going to start a conspiracy theory about ribbon dancers. That's what we're going to do. Yes. <laughs> you, you heard it here, folks. You heard it here first. Watch those, watch those <laughs> Olympic dancers. I love ribbon dancing. So no, no we're not going to start that. What we're going to do is we're going to get back to the topic at hand here. Are conspiracy theories at the top of a slippery slope down to extremism? No, it's it's not as simple as that. It just, it isn't, and it can't be. Um, There's definitely a correlation between political extremism and conspiracy thinking. Almost every radicalized group can be associated with a conspiracy theory or a group of conspiracy theories. And those theories seem to act as a radicalization multiplier or a catalyst to further extremism and even violence. But we can't describe conspiracy thinking as a first step or even decidedly say that it's a step on the path. I think the better way to describe the relationship is with everyone's favorite charting tool, a Venn diagram. That's my favorite. I love Venn diagrams, right? So if we're making a Venn diagram on our piece of paper, we'd have our circles and one of those circles would be conspiracy thinking. And another circle would be political extremist thinking. And at some point, those two circles would overlap. Researchers actually think they have some idea about why those circles overlap, but there isn't evidence that it's a causative relationship in the work that has been done so far. But here's what, here's what they do see. Um, they see that people who believe in politically extreme ideas, political ideologies that are very far left, like communism, or very far right, like fascism, are also likely to believe in conspiracy theories. Now, it's not likely that their belief in extreme ideologies causes them to believe in conspiracy theories. Instead, researchers like Van Pruyen believe that there are intellectual structures at play that predispose people to both extreme ideologies and conspiracy theories. Exactly. Kind of like our ribbon dancing, right? Ribbon dancing and foot amputations, the one thing that they have in common is feet. They've got something in common. Feet. That's You have to use your feet to ribbon dance. Well, traditional ribbon dancing. (laughs) (laughs) And you have to have feet to have them amputated. So... It has been established that political extremists tend to employ highly rigid and very structured thinking styles, which classifies social stimuli in purely dichotomous groups, good and evil, black and white, yes and no. And so they also tend to oversimplify solutions to social problems because of this dichotomous thinking and believe that a simple implementation of their preferred solution, their good would eliminate the given social issue, the evil. And then we can layer on top of that that they also tend to suffer from what Van Proyen calls a crippled epistemology, which is just a very, very fancy term for something that you've probably heard referred to as an echo chamber. And it describes that phenomenon in which someone only accepts information and perspectives from sources that align with their in-group or their extremist perspective as being valid. 
I'm going to just let that sink in for a minute. And so we know that those same characteristics apply to folks who hold conspiracy beliefs. They're both attracted to conspiracy theories and extremist beliefs because of this thinking framework. Now, I, w I want to explore this just a little more and look at a framework for how radicalization happens. And then we can double back with our conspiracy theories, right? And mm -hmm. see how that framework applies because it makes it, the overlap becomes really apparent. So why do people become radicalized? What leads people to do things that are so far out of the realm of quote unquote normal that it might endanger their health, their wealth, their happiness, or even lead directly to their deaths? These people, these extremists, they're disproportionately committed to fulfilling ends served by extreme behavior, the, the ultimate Machiavellians. Um, the commitment prompts a devaluation or a, a, a suppression of considering other options of behavior that might not be so extreme. So instead of voting and working through the democratic process to form, say, a religious state, someone instead takes up arms and decides to kill the existing leadership and install their own theocracy. That's happened many times in many different ways. So how does a person get there? Well, the way that a person actually comes to that place where everything loses value except this ultimate goal is it's gradual. It's not just something that happens overnight. Uh, there are three main pillars that lead to this, this end result. The first one is that they have to become sensitized to a goal that has significance. Uh, in nerd speak or in writer speak, they have to have a quest. There needs to be a hero's journey. That's right. Exactly. The quest. The quest. Uh, they also have to identify extremism or radical action as the appropriate means. Usually this occurs through my favorite process, a strong narrative, right? The narrative builds that permission structure that allows people to believe that extreme actions are the right way to do things. Robin. What's a permission structure? I think that's a term of art that we are familiar with because of our various jobs. Right. But explain that really quick because it just hit me that it's not super clear. Sure. A permission structure is it's kind of a part of the narrative process that allows you to say yes to things along the way. Um, it's the way that a story is built that gives you permission to accept the previous part and move on to the next part. So you see it in political ads uh, when one party is trying to appeal to a member of another party, they are trying to find a way to give that person permission to vote for the wrong quote unquote party. Right. You know, mm -hmm. we believe the same thing here and yeah. I'm better for you. You can vote for me. You won't be betraying your party because I want to do the same thing you know, that, that your party wants to do here. Right. That There's so much structure. of that going on right now, actually, as basically all of Congress is jockeying and, and trying to figure out how they're going to proceed with this impeachment trial in a couple of weeks. There's so much of, of that conversation going on right now. So many stories and the stories that are coming out of it are basically saying, look here, Republican Congress members, 
you can have permission to vote to impeach President Trump, even though he's part of your own party, because the sin that he committed was so egregious, because he violated this, because we need to find a way to move forward together, because what happened at the Capitol was so unacceptable, you have permission, you have a safe place in here to express that that was not okay. In marketing, what we do is we try to, um, it's, it's not as much getting people to say yes, but we try to remove their ability to say no at any point along the line, all the way down to the final commitment, right? So if at any point in my marketing narrative, you can answer no to the question that I'm proposing, you can stop engaging with my narrative. So what we've got to do is we've got to give you the ability to say yes all the way along the line so we can get you to that final call to action and you have permission to engage with that call to action. In this sense, people have to build that permission structure through this narrative to allow themselves to say yes to that radical, that extremism, that extreme action. So that's yeah. pillar number two. To, so to marry that with the first one, your goal is so significant, so significant that it is okay to do whatever is necessary to accomplish that end goal. And then the third pillar is that the commitment to the goal has to become dominant in that person's mind. Um, this happens a lot through community, right? The extremist will surround themselves with a network or become surrounded by a network because it's not always them surrounding themselves. It can be the right. network surrounding them with a group of people that shares their ideology and validates that same narrative and continues giving them that permission to number one, let this very important quest become top of mind, the most important thing. And number two, to engage with radical action as the only appropriate means to accomplishing that quest. It's that echo chamber idea again. Mm -hmm. Basically, the third pillar is at some point you find yourself in an echo chamber. Mm -hmm. Now, I think for people, the first pillar is, is probably the easiest to understand, right? Almost to a person, we have a desire to matter, to be significant, to make an impact. Um, there are plenty of ways that we can meet this need that are socially acceptable. And we usually think of them, those acceptable ways, in terms of achievements. Um, so like people with a high-paying job or with a family or with an exceptional talent Something like that. Obviously, you know, whatever would be considered fulfilling varies from person to person. It's not going to be a family for everybody. It's not going to be a high paying job for everybody. This isn't to say that. It's just those are traditional, socially acceptable achievements, uh, a way to be significant. Um, but finding a narrative that would drive a person to extremism probably seems a little harder to wrap your head around. Because before any extremist was an extremist, they were just people. You know, I'll, I'll caveat that with, I'm sure there are exceptions as there always right. are. But like, nobody is born an, an, ex an extremist. They are conditioned into it. So how does somebody that's just like you and me reached that point in that where how do they how do they start listening to that narrative because somebody's not going to walk up to you robin and say hey we got to go we got to go nuke all the republicans today and you'll be like yeah done yeah. like that'll never happen well it's through stories right like my whole 
my whole entire life I've been fascinated with, obsessed with, immersed in stories because stories are our most powerful tool, I believe, for understanding the world around us. Almost every single one of us perceives at least some part of their life through a story narrative. They're powerful, powerful tools and they don't have to be complicated. In fact, I think that the simpler they are, the more powerful they can become. So for an extremist, the the narrative often looks like something like, oh, that group of people over there, those people, whether that's Jews or Muslims or black people or immigrants or Democrats or rich people or poor people or white people, right? Take your pick. Any group that you can define as an other is actively working against you and they want to take something from you that is very important to you. Every single one of us can think of the most important thing in our life. And for most of us, that has something to do with um, our our identity. It's our family. It's our money. It's our way of life. It's our country, the place that we live, right? So that simple narrative can, can look something like that group of people is trying to take the most important thing in your life away from you. And they're going to keep trying until they've taken everything from you. And the only way that you can stop them is to resist. I mean, if you if you take a normal person and you were to fill in just some basic normal people stuff, like, um, you know, those four black teenagers over there are going to come and they're going to try to take your purse from you. And they might try to take your life from you. And the only way that you can keep that from happening is to resist, whether it's, you know, by putting yourself on the other side of the street or locking that door, right? It's a simple narrative. It's a narrative that we've all heard. It's not that hard to buy into these things when you put the things that are most important to us on the line. But then this extremist narrative takes it just that little bit further, right? So... Not only is the only way to stop them resistance, but they control everything now. So the normal things that you might do won't work. You have to work outside of the system, outside of that normal morality. And really, is it not moral to bring justice to those who would harm you or something that, that you hold important, right? That's not violence, That's order. That's appropriate. That's the only thing that you can do at this point uh, to go back to the the guy who shot off his AR-15 in a pizza restaurant. He was so convinced that there were victimized children in that restaurant that he actively told himself, there is nothing else that you can do. If you know this is happening and you have the means to stop it, you are morally obligated to stop it. And you can't just call the cops because they're in on it, right? They control everything now. You have to work outside the normal morality. And that's not a crime. That's not violence. That's order. You are doing a good thing by going in there and taking this action. And that's how the narrative goes from just your basic, simple, you protecting something that's important to you to a far more radical and far more extreme place very quickly. Now imagine, imagine that you don't just hear that story once. You hear it over and over and over from all the people you associate with, from everybody you listen to, from every news station that you tune into, from every radio host that you talk to, from every book that you read. 
Um, it's just a million different voices in a million different ways pushing that that line. Watch out for that group. They'll kill you if you don't kill them first. It makes the next course of action seem real clear, doesn't it? And that's why the third pillar, a commitment to the goal built and supported by this network that you've knowingly or unknowingly surrounded yourself with, that's why that point is necessary. Most people won't become committed to an idea by themselves. Again, there are outliers. But once you're surrounded by a crowd that's just echoing and cheering you on, suddenly the extreme doesn't seem so extreme. Look at all these other people that feel the way I do. Yeah. I'm not the crazy one. There's a lot of us. Yeah. Right. And this... 74 million of us think this. (laughs) Clearly, we're the in-group. Clearly, right? And it, like, all of this happens slowly. It's weeks. It's months. It might even be years. There are some people who have four years of investment in these QAnon conspiracy theories. It happens a little nudge at a time. One little pattern that you think that you pick out. Something that you think you see over here. And now imagine, again, that you fully really believe that there are people out there trafficking children so they can brutalize and eat them or parts of them in order to serve Satan and manipulate the levers of power. Imagine that you really, really, really believe that deep down in the deepest parts of you. How fast would you be willing to act and how far would you go to stop that? And that is why conspiracy theories act as something called radicalization multipliers. Right. We talked about that earlier, right? What, so what does that phrase radicalization multiplier actually mean? So that idea comes from researchers Bartlett and Miller, who began looking at the connection between extremist groups and conspiracy theories in 2010. They're 10 years in on this. I mean, really, really early in the academic and psychological assessment of both conspiracy theories and and extremist groups. And their assertion is that these conspiracy beliefs hold extremist groups together, right? And can push them in more extreme and sometimes violent directions. So they think that the multiplication factor works in three different ways. The first one is that conspiracy theories create demonologies of the other or the enemy that the group defines itself against. We're accusing outsiders of perpetrating nefarious conspiracies and that hardens the in-group's sense of identity and collective minority against the outsiders. And it inspires a tendency to overestimate the external scrutiny of the group and attribute everyone else's behavior to that scrutiny. They're watching us and everyone else is paying attention to us because, you know, they are trying to hurt us. This is called sinister attribution error or paranoid cognition. And it means that a small, close-knit group of co-believers is locked in an existential struggle with an out-group. And that out-group is literally everyone else. The second way that this radicalization multiplier works is that it delegitimizes voices of dissent and moderation by casting them as part of the conspiracy. In the groups Bartlett and Miller examined, a common ploy was for group leaders to accuse critics of being patsies or 
disinformation agents working on behalf of the conspirators. The media is often the target of these attacks. I am sure you've heard that over and over again. (laughs) Media, the media is conspiring against us. You can't trust the media, said the people that shared the article off of that one media website. Anyway, uh, because this is what is known to psychologists as the third person effect. And it describes the tendency for people to believe that the media has a larger influence on others than it does on themselves. So I don't trust the media, but all of these sheeple over here do. Exactly. And then the third way that that conspiracy theories can act as this force multiplier is that they encourage a group to turn to violence as a necessary tool to awaken the people from their acquiescent slumber. The rhetoric of extremist groups that become violent presents this move as the only option available to them for one or more of several reasons. Either the group is under attack, or its goals are unattainable through peaceful means, or there is some sense of impending apocalyptic doom and a response is needed urgently. Mark Sageman, who is a leading expert on Al-Qaeda, believes that this is what distinguishes terrorists from nonviolent extremists. They lose faith in other channels of dissent. They see no other option. And that, he believes, is what makes them terrorists. That sounds real familiar. Hmm, I'm sure it does. Almost perfectly echoes the rhetoric we've been hearing for the last several months and years about government overreach, uh, pandemic guidelines, the election... When these factors are accepted and applied by large groups of radicalized people, it can result in generational atrocity. And we can take these pillars and these multipliers and we can actually use them as a tool to analyze what we saw happen on January 6th. We can plug in things that we know about that and just see how how that radicalization, that radical activity may have come to be. Now, a disclaimer up front. There are many reasons that the attack on the Capitol happened. Not everyone there believes something absolutely insane. But according to the data, the majority of them probably believed at least one conspiracy theory, that the election was stolen. Only 25% of Republicans trusted the results of the presidential election in 2020, according to a poll conducted by NPR between December 1st and December 6th. Fully 75% of Republicans believed that the election was stolen or tampered with in some way and that we couldn't trust the results. Right. Now, I think we can safely say at least 75% of the crowd on January 6th (laughs) believed the election was stolen since they were literally there to force Pence and or Congress to overturn the election results and install Trump for another term. Right. And mixed in there, we know there were supporters of QAnon, people who genuinely believed in that whole satanic pedophile cannibal thing, who believed that... President Trump really did win the election and that the truth was going to prevail and that he would be installed for a second term. And like we discussed in the last episode, the biggest predictor that someone believes in one conspiracy theory is that they already believe in another conspiracy theory. 
So we have a crowd of people that earnestly believes that either their country has been stolen from them or that it was stolen from them by baby eaters or a whole host of other combinations of things. Right. Just a side note, interestingly, uh, I believe the current prediction from the QAnon crowd is that Trump will be reinstalled as president on March 4th. Right, which is so. the true inauguration day before it was perverted through government means. Right. So now we can fulfill the first pillar. After all, what is the noblest, most meaningful thing a true patriot can do if it's not standing up to the tyrants and saving their country and beating the commies? I mean, restoring democracy to America. <laughs> is that not a quest that would bring recognition and meaning to your life? Yeah, the, the narrative writes itself. You have to do something or these terrible bad people will get away with the terrible bad thing that they're doing and that will destroy America or at least the America that you would like to live in. You tried voting and it didn't work. So now you have to do something that's more drastic. And it would appear that the logical progression there was that you have to break in and take back what is rightfully yours or break in and force them to to keep together your picture of America. And the only way to do that is through violence. You have to go out there and show them your power. You have to scare them into changing their minds. Mm -hmm. And if they don't, you set up the, the gallows outside of the Capitol. Oh, man. Oh, How long man. has that narrative been pushed? Four years? More? White House, Fox, OANN, Newsmax, radio show hosts, they all built and pushed and drove that narrative. And you can follow it. Remember when Trump claimed that if he lost to Hillary, it would be because the election was rigged? When Congress people said Trump's first impeachment was a witch hunt? When the phrase Trump derangement syndrome was coined? They're all just different parts of the narrative that the system was out to get Trump and his supporters. And having such a wide variety of sources pushing that same narrative made it really easy for people to build a community of like-minded individuals and to block out everyone and everything that didn't agree with them. We, I mean, I don't know how many times I saw that on social media this spring, you know, people admonishing each other not to unfollow and unfriend everyone who disagreed with them while also unfollowing and unfriending everybody who disagreed with them. <laughs> um, but, but thanks to the internet and social media, it's really easy to build our crippled epistemology, our echo chamber. The narratives yeah. just keep spinning. And the more people heard it, the less crazy it seemed. And then you had alternative platforms like parlors showing up and groups taking off on Reddit and in, in Facebook. And it condenses that group and removes just any semblance of moderation that they might have had and goes even further to discredit any moderation because when you have a quest that is that important moderation is as good as opposition that's that that's the second part of the 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 multiplier yeah that's delegitimizing those voices of dissent we saw it in full effect you you either got dismissed out of hand as being a sheep mm -hmm. right 
or outright accused of being uh, in on it, of being, you know, a shill of the of them, of the media. Um, it was actually every, I think, every modifier or multiplier we saw at work. The other, the enemy, in-groups, out-groups. Yeah, this is the only way that we can do it. Right. You know, if Mike Pence and, and Congress are not going to do their job, we're going to have to go in there and do it for them. All the, of it. Awakening people from their slumber. The storm, that's the cue. The storm is when Trump reveals his grand scheme and arrests all of the people and they go to jail and, you know, everybody wakes up because, oh my gosh, Trump was right this whole time. It's the, the, the great awakening. Right. So. And I, I want to be fair here and point out that while we're, we're focusing on this as, as a, a case study on how these beliefs can snowball into this radical behavior. It's not just people you would perceive as crazy and radical who engage in this kind of insulation and isolation, right? right? We've all seen the, the beautifully designed memes going around that say something like, if you disagree with me on matters of human rights and you can just go ahead and unfriend me right now. Right. All of this, these narratives are designed on both sides, right and left, progressive and conservative, to eliminate the moderation. Right. You cannot have a conversation in the middle because moderation is opposition. So I guess one thing that I would just if you're listening to this, be very aware of that narrative in every communication, no matter what yeah. side you sit on, if there is no room for moderation, then you are likely encountering a radical narrative that is designed to isolate you and push you further toward other people who are going to echo the same things over and over. Whether or not you believe those to be good and true or not. Right. January 6th is just one example of how this perfect storm comes together. It's just one example in a long line of extremist activity, and it's not going to be the last. The only way that we can combat that is to actively reject these pillars of radicalization and actively reject these force multipliers and live in the moderation. Right, which people hate to hear because... Uh, we've seen it. What is it? Uh, I can't. People writing off. People writing off like the the, the people who rioted at the Capitol, mm -hmm. which is so tempting to do. Oh like, yeah. I cannot. I can't. I can't reason with them. I can't reach across the aisle to them, and because it's just it. It makes sense, honestly. Like these people, it feels like it makes sense. I should say these people aren't you know, Americans, they're trying to overthrow our democracy, but it also fails to recognize that people who are doing that on the other side are equally convinced about the nobility of their beliefs. Mm -hmm. And they can be wrong and still feel like they are doing the right thing. Genuinely believe that this is the right and moral thing to do. 
doesn't matter if you're left or right. You can be wrong and still feel that way. And you can't expect somebody who feels like they're doing the right thing to recognize that they're not doing the right thing. You have to de-radicalize that person, which is a whole other episode of how to do that. But you have to get them out of that, that echo chamber first and foremost. And that's never going to happen if we just write everybody off. And it's hard work and it's dirty work and a lot of people don't want to do it. And a lot of people have very good reasons for not wanting to do it because it would be doing labor Mm -hmm. for somebody that, that does not deserve your effort. I get that. We, you see it a lot in, in, in race discussions, race relations, you know, expecting a, a person of color to do the work for the, for the, the white person, if you will, to get the white person to understand what's happening. Mm-hmm. I can understand, like, that's not, it's not that person of color's job to do that. It is your job to go figure that out. I can understand not wanting to do that labor. <laughs> At the same time, right. people who aren't asking the questions aren't going to go out and do that labor on their own anyway. Yeah. They're just going to stay in their echo chambers. So at some point, there has to be some sort of line where we stand and we, we, in good faith, try to bring those people out of their echo chambers. Right. And, and, and even, I mean, even if you can't, even if you cannot commit the energy to be the one to do the work of de-radicalization, to do the work of education at least be the person who can who can stop the dehumanization right mm. like do not demonize the other if you can even just stop short of that i think we'll be on a good track but right now everything that we see from both sides wants us to demonize the other you go out in public and you see somebody without a mask on they don't care about anyone else but themselves and they want old people to die. That's the narrative. That's the story. I care about other people, so I'm wearing a mask. And if you don't, then you are, you know, then you don't care about other people. There's no room for discussion. There's no conversation. It's just automatic demonization of the other. Don't assume malice where... <laughs> The explanation could be something as simple as ignorance. Yep. Or forgetfulness. ADHD. I don't know how many times I have walked out of my car without my mask and had to turn my little butt around. Yeah, me too. I actually walked out of my car this morning and had to walk back three times because I forgot different things. It was really frustrating by the third time. I was pissed. I was like, are you kidding me? Get it together, John. Yes. Right, yeah, but like, but but again, going back to the idea that not all conspiracy theories are big and overarching and involve governments. The basis of this thinking, these pillars right here, the pillars of radicalization and, and the force multipliers of conspiracy, they're at play every single time you engage with somebody who is not a part of your in-group. Yeah. And that's exactly to reiterate why we're talking about this now. We are just trying to highlight the path that that led us to January 6th, that led to other extremist actions throughout history that will lead to future ones. Mm -hmm. 
we hope that in listening to this, you can recognize when you are on that path, when you're standing on one of those pillars, when you are encountering those memes and those that commentary that is dividing people into their groups and shoving them into their echo chambers. Because this can and it, it can happen again and it is it is still happening. The the fallout from January 6th, the aftershocks, they're still going on. We're not out of the woods yet from that one activity and we might never actually get out of the woods or we might not make it out for a very long time. But hopefully, hopefully, by recognizing the signs, by knowing what to look for, by being intentional about how you approach things, we can head things off if they start to careen into that extremist direction again. That's all it takes. Sounds so simple. Right? Baby steps. Yeah. You know what is simple, though? What is? Contacting us on I'm, social media. Would you like I to tell them how? I do to do it. I'm so good at this segue business. That's so good. You can reach us if you like what we're doing here. If you want to comment or want to tell us how cool we are, you can reach us in a variety of ways. First of all, Facebook, Instagram. We are Fireside Breakdowns on both of those. We're also officially on Twitter now. Yes, if you search for Fireside Breakdowns, you'll find us. But because Twitter is weird with usernames, I think our our actual username is like Fireside Break D one. But if you search Fireside Breakdowns, you'll find us. That's weird. Um, yeah, the do- <laughs> content is spinning up slower on that platform as we figure that thing out. I retweet uh, some stuff sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, we, we're getting real old. Getting I have to put a hot water bottle on my back sometimes and oh. take my Metamucil. No, not... right. But the real explanation for this is that, A, we both work full-time jobs. And two, managing social media is literally my oh. full-time job. Yeah. And so by the, time, by the time I get to the end of the day and I'm like, I got to put something on for my podcast it's like well i'm just gonna retweet this or share this to my story so it's coming along slowly but we will get there there. cobbler's kids don't have any shoes that's how it works yeah (laughs) that's actually my job is literally researching so coming home to put in another four hours of research is just like oh gosh yeah get the coffee going anyway um so you can also reach us at firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com And we would greatly appreciate it. Like seriously, best gift you could give us is if you leave us a review on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on, if it allows it. That is so good for us because it gets the algorithms putting our name out there for people who are looking for new podcasts. Um, And that means hopefully it's good for the world because it's more people listening to us and all of this cool information with our sources and citations that we work so hard to bring to you. And that can only make things better, right? Yes. That's what we like to hope anyway. Facts. Facts. Facts and logic. Uh, <laughs> that might be a trademark phrase. I don't know. Nobody rat us out. Yeah. So I think I covered our, our, our reaches, how yeah. you get to us. 
Uh, Robin, hit us with that good news before I play us out. It is time for some good news. As one of the actions that he has taken during his first 100 days, President Biden, I feel so good to say that, President Biden signed an executive order uh, titled Memorandum on Restoring Trust in Government Through Scientific Integrity and Evidence-Based Policymaking. It is a very long title for an executive it's, order. It rolls right <laughs> off the tongue there. Exactly. Uh, but what that does is it outlines the steps that this administration is going to take to ensure that government agencies hold as closely as possible to scientific and evidence-based policymaking rather than being guided by partisan or personal priorities in their policymaking. Um, there are a lot of people out there that are saying that this move is largely ceremonial. It's kind of hard to enforce. Um, but no matter what, it does indicate the intentionality of this administration to return governmental agencies to the pursuit of actual evidence and integrous best practices. And I don't care who you are, that's just plain good news. I love it. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to us. We will see you in a week. Well, you'll hear us in a week. We won't see any No, we won't see you. You'll hear from us in a week. Have a wonderful week. And uh, take care of each other. Bye.